0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, if you remember, the last Sunday in August, we started a new series. We're taking it up on the last Sundays of the month when we celebrate. The Lord's Table together. The the series is on the one another passages of scripture. We said that the Greek word that we translate one another is used about a hundred times in the New Testament in 94 verses. And out of these, a third of them relate to unity in the life of the church. Another third relates to loving one another. And then a large section has to do with, with humility. And then there's some other ones that don't really fit into either of those, any of those three categories. So last time we started looking at the love one another's. And we're going to continue that trajectory today as we talk about serving one another through love. So let's look at Galatians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 13. So if you would stand with me as we we read from the scriptures together. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning, this one another, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in a, in a way in our lives to, to help us to understand this, this text. Help us to, to put it in its, in its context. Help us to understand it and, and apply it to our lives, in our situation, in our church. Lord, we ask that, that you would help us to be people who, who love one another, who serve one another, who put other's needs before ourselves that we wouldn't be people who, who bite and devour and therefore are consumed by one another. Lord, we pray that you would work in the life of your church Create us to be the people that you would have us be, that we might bring glory and honor to you. We pray that you would do this great and tremendous work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we we get to the the specific text and and deal with this text in in Galatians 5, I, I want you to think a little bit about heaven. This is a, a pretty long quote from Jonathan Edwards. I, I think it's worth it. And I want you to, to hear it. it. It's absolutely beautiful. He says this. Oh, what tranquility there will be in such a world as this. Speaking of heaven. And who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm this is. How sweet, how holy, how joyous. What a haven of rest to enter after have passing through the storms and tempests of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and consolation and vice are all waves of restless ocean always rolling and often dashed about by violence and fury. Oh, what joy there will be springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through their wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this every saint in heaven is as a flower in the garden of god and holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor that they all send forth and with which they fill the bowers of the paradise above Every soul there is as a, a note in the same concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note, and altogether blend in the most rapturous of strains, praising our God and the Lamb forever. End quote. What Edwards does here beautifully is contrasts heaven with the world in which we are living now. This world is waves of restless ocean always rolling and dashed by violence. But in heaven, every saint is a flower in the garden of God bringing forth a a sweet aroma to him. Voices that that match together in, in perfect harmony singing praise to our God. Let me ask you this. Is this the way it is now in the church? If we want to be honest, the church is not like this. This is perfect harmony. The church is a mess. It's a messy place because you have people, these people, gathering in community who are all sinners, whose lives are, are messy. They bring different messes into one community group. And the question is, and that some people have and, and they really wrestle with, is the church a mess or even worth dealing with? Timothy Lane and David Paul Tripp wrote a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And in that book they say this, well, we would like to avoid the, the mess and deep the mess, and enjoy deep and intimate community with one another, God says that it's the very process of working through that mess that intimacy and true community is found. Did you hear that? It's the process of working through the mess that true community is found. Sometimes we think, that some people just are too much of a mess and therefore we don't have a desire to have a relationship with them. We think that we all have to look a certain way to be part of a church. We don't look at people and say, how can we help them through their life? How can we help them in the struggle not only this but we often don't realize how much of a mess we are perhaps we're not the same mess as person a or person b but we're a mess just the same kent hughes well-known pastor and, and scholar Wrote this, he said, So if we truly desire meaningful Christian community, the question we must ask ourselves is this How do we work our way through this mess? I love the fact that you have the the word mess isn't just my word. It's it's a lot of, of people that are that are coming to this and are saying, This is what we're working through. This is what we're bringing to the table. I bring this up at the onset, one, to remind us that we're in the process of of working through something we haven't arrived yet. We're in the process of working through a a mess. That's what the church is. We recognize that the, the remedy for that mess, the only one that can make any kind of sense out of that mess and give any kind of order to our lives is Jesus Christ, and we're a community of believers that allow Jesus to take and, and shape us and order us through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I also bring this up to point back to the churches in Galatia. If we look at our present context and we think our churches are a mess, the churches in Galatia were a mess. There was a a big mess in these churches. The purpose of Paul's letter to them here was to help them sort through a mess. There's a sense in which that's the purpose of a scripture, isn't it? It helps us sort through that mess. It's sort of interesting that in God's sovereignty, he takes what was going on in the lives of a specific group of people, specific churches, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago and uses those same words written to them to help them sort through that mess and uses it to help us now sort through the mess that we are in. That's sovereignty. Now, let's look at the book of Galatians here. The, the book of Galatians is, is written in, in a way, so the first four and a half chapters are written to help the church deal with this this mess from a, a biblical theological perspective. And then 513 through chapter six is what has been called the the ethical portion of the letter, where Paul turns and provides more uh practical and specific instructions on how this church is to deal with this mess. Now in Galatians we recognize that there were people that were coming into these Churches, the churches of, of Galatia, that's a region, and they were causing division by teaching that one must adhere to the law in, in order to be saved. So the issue went something like this in the churches in Galatia. Can Gentiles become Christians? Some would say, yes, if they believe the Lord Jesus Christ, trust him alone for their salvation, they can be saved. Another would say, yes, a Gentile could be saved as long as they start obeying the Jewish law in some respects, as long as they're circumcised and believe in Jesus, then they can be a Christian. Paul is very clear. The gospel does not include law-keeping. One doesn't have to keep the law or to be circumcised in order to be saved. One must only have faith. Faith alone apart from works. Kent Hughes again, makes this observation. He says that the students of the book of Galatians recognize that the second part of the book is so essential to understanding the book as a whole. And the opening verses in this section, so the verses that are before us today, really identify the key to working successfully through the mess that we call church. Having said all of this, I want to just kind of pause and make a parenthetical statement for a moment. I've used the word, I've used the word mess over and over again. And that's not a a negative assessment of our church or the church. I'm speaking of the church in general, and that's because we're not that perfect chorus of voices that Edwards talked about. But we're on this wearisome pilgrimage that he talked about. We're on our way to heaven. There is hope. Heaven is our hope. There is a day in which there will be no more mess. When things are going to be this rapturous sounds, this beautiful fragrance to God. But as for now, we're not there. We're working through where we're at. We haven't arrived yet. I'm not saying that the church shouldn't take a stand against sin and call sin what it is. I'm not saying that people not making an excuse for that. I'm not saying that people that should know better shouldn't be confronted. Not saying that either. In fact, that's how you help people through the mess. The fact is that we we are all and I said this in some way I said this in a way earlier that we're all continually letting the scriptures come to bear on who we are and we're trusting and relying on on his strength to obey them. That's what it means to be in, in process. That's what it means to be in, in a church, is to, to submit, like we talked about a few weeks ago, come, submit to the, the word of God in our life and let them come in and bear on who we are and shape us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean when I'm speaking about the process of, of going through this mess. God isn't finished with us yet. I'm not satisfied with the mess. And not only are we in process, but we're in process together, in community, in group. We're helping one another. And I think that's what this section in, in Galatians is, is talking about. So. Now, I said that this section here in Galatians 5 is a great key in working our way through this, this mess. And, and the idea here, through love, serve one another. That's verse 13. But notice that Paul takes and surrounds this command to love one another through service with great motivations. Notice that in the first part of the verse, there's a, a great reminder. And then there's a warning And there's also encouragement. So the point of the reminder, the warning, and the encouragement here is to, as Kent Hughes says, stir the Galatians up. To stir us up. Stir us up for what? To serve one another in love. That's the idea. A reminder, a warning, encouragement. The outcome Serve one another in love. So that's what, our, that's what our prayer is for this morning, is that as we deal with this text, that you would be stirred to love one another and to serve them. We've talked about this before, but I want you to notice something else here, and that is that the commands in Scripture, so this command, serve one another in, in love, is this, this so? The commands in Scripture are grounded in indicative or truths about us in Christ, and this is a good example of that. When we come to this, this reminder that the command to to serve one another is grounded in what Paul reminds the Galatians of. So the command is to serve one another in love. And we need to ask ourselves, what's the reminder? Look at the start of verse 13 for a moment. Just the, the word for there. The idea of the word for is that Paul is assigning a reason. So for this reason, you are called to freedom. That through love, you serve one another. For this reason, you are called. Let's think about that idea of being called to freedom. Think about that in American context. When you think of freedom, most often we think of it in political and economic terms. Even when it comes to church and religion, we think of freedom in America as freedom given to us by our country that we have to assemble. And that so much shapes what we think when we speak of freedom in Christ. We think, well, that means that in Christ we have freedom to worship. We have freedom to to assemble. There's freedom of religion in our country. But the problem here is that that freedom isn't given to us by Christ. We're talking about freedoms in our country. Now this verse in Galatians and is interesting for you. So he's saying the you here is the Galatians, the believers in these churches. So these believers were called by God. Sometimes we're tempted to read this statement in a way that says that you were called meaning That God desires you to have freedom. In other other words, the word call here is a subjective thing. You were saved, then God called you, and you're supposed to be free. God saved you and then desires this of you. But we need to understand the word called here is something very objective. It's the calling us to salvation itself. Like when Jesus called the disciples. When Jesus called the disciples, it was a, it was an infectual call. Jesus went to Matthew, the, the tax, in the tax booth and said, follow me. And he got up and he left. And that's how it is with each of us. Jesus called us to follow him. We respond. The call here must be effectual because Paul is only speaking to believers who were called to this freedom. His words are to those who have heard the gospel. They've heard the general call of the gospel and responded to it so it was effectual in their lives. We could generally say, we could change this up a little bit and generally say that we were saved to freedom, Instead of using the word called, that would be true here, but it would also miss something very important. And that is the picture of one being called and and leaving something behind and gaining something in return. Matthew left the tax booth and gained Christ. Left all his money, tax booth stuff behind. Peter left the fishing boats and he gained Christ. And here in this text, Paul is telling the Galatians that when you were called by Christ, you gained him, and in Christ there is freedom. And this stands in stark contrast with how many from outside Christianity look in at it. It also stands in contrast with how some from within the Christian faith look at the Christian religion. There's a tendency to see the Christian faith as as depriving us from freedom, not giving it. When one adheres to Christianity or comes to Jesus in, in faith, in essence, what we're doing is adopting a new way of life and submitting ourselves to a new set of moral guidelines. We submit to the Bible, and the Bible has a lot of do's and don'ts in it, doesn't it? You can see why, for some, being a Christian isn't about freedom, but about rules and obligations. Now, of course, we can come back and say, well, it's, it's about a relationship, not a religion. You got you to speak of the Christian faith in terms of a relationship. But that doesn't change the fact that this relationship still requires obedience, doesn't it? And and the relationship versus religion thing is something that we ought to be careful with because it's true. The Christian faith is about relationship, but it isn't about a relationship where one must earn Christ's approval through obedience. And this is what people outside and many inside do not understand. I mean, I would guess there are people here that still see their relationship with Jesus in this way. But they are to be obedient to achieve merit or a closer relationship with Jesus. Now, I need to be careful because I don't want to downplay obedience. Obedience is crucial. If you love Jesus, you will obey Jesus. That's John 14:15. It's clear. What I'm getting at is the reason for that obedience and the danger of one saying that if you're a Christian, that it is through your obedience that you merit favor with God. Here's the fact. For the Christian, God is perfectly pleased with you in Christ. What I'm saying is that Christ was perfectly obedient. Where we we fall short... And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, something marvelous happens. Our sin is exchanged for Christ's righteousness. Our sin was given to him in which he paid for on the cross, past, present, future. And we in return receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is how I can say that if you're a believer... God is perfectly pleased with you in Christ Jesus because he looks at you and he doesn't see your own merit. He doesn't see your unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to you. This is what the reformers called the great exchange. It's marvelous. And really it's the only way to make sense of what Paul is saying here. I mean, even back up to the first verse in in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Christ set us free from the penalty of sin on the cross, and he did this not so that we would be tied to a yoke of slavery, but so that we would be free. Saying it again in verse 13, you were called to freedom. You were set free from sin's bondage. In other words, Christ has freed us from the bondage of the world, the devil, and the flesh. I'm getting that from Ephesians 2. I'm not saying that those things are not a source of, of temptation. They're not a source of frustration for the Christian. They absolutely are. What I'm saying is that before, before Christ, we were slaves to those things. We were in bondage to our sin and rebellion. But now we're free. And for the first time, we're free to live in obedience. We're free to do something that we could not have done before. Before Christ, we couldn't truly be obedient in a way that pleased and glorified God. It was impossible. But because of Christ, by our obedience, now we can, now we can glorify God. Now we can please him. That's why Paul says here, you're free. Why would you want to return and give over to the lust of your flesh after Christ freed you from that stronghold? Why would, why would you want to go back under that yoke that you were liberated from? You were in bondage to the flesh. You were controlled by the flesh. The flesh had you. You, you couldn't. Act in any way that was outside those bounds. Now you're, you're free to be obedient. You're free to, to live like Christ wants you to live. Why would you want to go back under that yoke? So that's the reminder here. It's a reminder of what Christ has done. That he has freed us from the bondage of of sin and now we're free to live in obedience to Christ. Not out of obligation, but out of gratitude for what he has done. The indicative that grounds the command here to serve one another through love. The truth about us in Christ that Paul reminds us of here is that in Christ, you are free. You're not bound to the flesh. In the flesh, people bite and devour one another. People don't live in, in harmony, but you're actually free to live in harmony. In the flesh, people don't love one another. People don't care one another. They don't serve one another. They're out for number one. That's themselves. But in Christ, you are free. You're free to be obedient. You're free to be obedient because of what Christ has done for you. Just look back at what he's freed you from. So Paul gives them a reminder. Then he gives them a warning. And the warning here is in the second part of verse 13 and then verse 15. So Paul warns the Galatians to not use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And he warns them, if they bite and devour one another, they will be consumed by one another. I'm not going to spend near as much time here, but we need to recognize that alone with what we just said in in reference to the reminder that while we are are freed from the bondage to the flesh, that the flesh is, is crucified, in a sense, We need to understand that the flesh isn't entirely gone, is it? When we come to Christ Jesus through the gospel, we are united with the crucified Christ, and our flesh then is is summarily executed. In other words, we're not in bondage to it anymore. Charles Wesley says, he says it this way, he breaks the power of canceled sin, and he sets the prisoner free. Free for what? Free to live in obedience. The challenge is that even though the flesh has been crucified with Christ, the flesh isn't gone yet. We still live in a sinful world. The devil is still active and he seeks to devour Christians. We live in sinful and and, and fallen bodies that are not completely free from the curse of sin and death. Our bodies are decaying and dying. We're feeling the effects of sin We're prone to temptation. So here's the question. Can a Christian who's been set free from the power and penalty of sin fall into deep and grievous sin? To ask that question another way, can a believer who is free, that's the reminder, can a believer who is free in Christ give opportunity to the flesh? Same question word of different ways the answer is absolutely I would say that in in this case in in some way this person would remember the gospel they would go back to the reminder they would go back to what Christ has done for them they would turn to Christ again in repentance I mean we could say a lot about this for now we're just highlighting that it is possible for the believer to fall into sin and here We're not talking about just any sin, but we're talking about relationships. We're talking about community. And specifically, we're talking about the command to serve one another in love. And when we fail to love one another, the opposite of that is is fighting and quarreling. So he's saying, don't give opportunity for the flesh Put this together. The flesh—it that's fighting and quarreling, not living together in harmony. Paul puts it here: biting and devouring one another. That's what happens when people give opportunities to flesh. And notice that it isn't the other person, the one with whom we've been or biting and devouring that gets consumed, it's us. That's the warning. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I mean, it, it just can't be any plainer. These things don't destroy the other person. They destroy you. I, I can't help but think of unforgiveness and bitterness. <laughs> I, I was listening to a podcast the other day by Heath Lambert, and he, he's, uh, he used to be the, the president of the Association of Biblical Counseling Counselors. Um, he's written several books. He, he said he defined bitterness this way. He said, um, bitterness is long-term anger that accrues in one's life when they refuse to forgive. And just think about how you would picture that manifesting itself. Long-term anger accruing in somebody. How is that gonna, how is that gonna manifest itself? Hmm? Paul nails it, doesn't he? Biting and devouring. Kent Hughes lists several ways in which we give opportunity to the flesh when it comes to our relationships. The way he words it is, ways in which we give the flesh an opportunity to establish a base of operations in our life. Let me give you some of them. First, I just mentioned this. We provide opportunities for the flesh when we coddle an unforgiving spirit and harbor a grudge towards somebody. Second, we provide opportunity for the flesh when we fail to overlook minor offenses and when we ourselves become easily offended. Third, we provide opportunity for the flesh when we allow ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others. Think about that. Even things that seem positive... We twist them and put a negative spin on them. In 1 Corinthians 13, we're to give people the benefit of the doubt because after all, love believes all things, right? Fourth, we give opportunity to the flesh when we give in and and talk negative about other people. Fifth, we provide opportunity for the flesh when we engage in conversations with those who are negative or when we continue in a conversation when things become negative about other people. Six, we provide opportunity for the flesh when we fail to deal with personal grievances swiftly and directly. Ephesians 4 is clear. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Allowing grievances to fester gives opportunity for the devil and his sin. And we are warned against giving opportunity to the flesh there. So that's six ways in which Hughes lists that we give opportunity for the flesh. Let's just think about that in the moment for a moment in the light of the reminder at the onset of verse 13. If we give opportunity for the flesh... If these things let me word it this way if these things that we mentioned give opportunity to the flesh, and we're going back under that, that yoke that we've been freed from, how would we then use our freedom? What's Paul saying here? How are you supposed to use your freedom? The flesh is what we are naturally inclined to follow, but in Christ we are free to obey and live a different life. It was not possible before. If we're to live in our freedom, wouldn't it be just as Paul says, in love, serve one another? It's really a command here that doesn't even need to be commanded because of all of the other things he said in the text. You're free, free to be obedient. Let me warn you, don't bite, don't devour one another, don't quarrel, because if you do, you're gonna be devoured by one another in the end. I mean, the unspoken command is, in freedom, in love, serve one another. When we abuse our freedom, we lose it. When we turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, we do not become more free, but we fall back into slavery. When we abuse our freedom, we lose it. That was the warning. Let me give you a word of encouragement. Let me close with, with this here. In light of that warning, in light of that reminder and that is that obedience to the law is a foreshadowing of heaven look at verse 14 the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself we started off talking about how church was different from heaven because it's it's a bit messy It's messy because there's a a remnant of the flesh that still exists while we wait for Christ's return in our resurrected bodies. But as we focus our attention on the reminder, as we heed this warning and recognize that in our gratitude, we, we long to be obedient. And in that obedience, we love and we serve one another. And when we do that, It points to a greater reality. And that is that one day we will all live together in perfect harmony. Just think of the testimony to those on the outside. Those inside the church, growing up. But the church isn't like the world. It's a different place here. Yes, they're they're messy people. They all bring... Messy things to the table, but they're in process. And even in that, we love and we serve one another instead of biting and devouring one another. Somebody wrongs somebody else. The way that's handled is different. We're not perfect. We won't be perfect on this side of heaven. But the more we gain ground the more we're in the process of dealing with that mess, the more this reality points to a future reality. Of course, the Lord's Supper is a picture of that reality, isn't it? Lord's Supper is a a time in which we all come together in unity, in harmony to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And the reason we come together is is we come together because Christ. Some take this time in the life of the church to use it to point to, to how imperfect and messy the church is. And while it is true, this isn't supposed to say that we're all perfect. It's saying that in Christ, we're all united with him And with one another, we're in this process together, that we're in Christ. Meaning that when we come to him in faith, he's saved us. He's put to death that bondage. He has freed us and we are free to live in obedience. And we come together and we recognize what he has done for us. Basically, this just takes us back to the reminder that we talked about earlier. It's because of him that we are brothers and sisters. And it's because of him that we can ultimately be free to love and serve one another. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.